0: Maybe a little bit of an unconventional text for Advent But hopefully as we work through this morning It will um, it'll make some connection points for you Psalm 51 If you don't have your Bible with you You can open the pew Bible there in front of you To 474 And you can follow along there as we read uh, God's Word The most important thing that you will hear this morning Is the reading of God's Word So Psalm 51, God's inspired and inerrant word reads, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make make me know your wisdom." Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be comforted or converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then young bulls will be all offered on your altar. Father, we now come before you, and we do ask that your Spirit would illuminate this text. And again, we would ask you to open our hearts and our minds, Father, that our thoughts will be directed towards you and focus on you. I pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The joy of Advent. The joy of Advent is that God did not give up on his people, but sent his people, a Savior. And this is what I want you to hear this morning. This is what you must hear this morning. The joy of Advent is that God did not give up on his people, but sent his people a Savior. Last Sunday, we started this Advent season at the end of the story, if you will. The hope of Advent. Our focus was on the second Advent, the second coming of Jesus. This is, and that is, our hope. Our hope is indeed that Jesus will return to make all things new. Imagine if you can a new heaven and a new earth. Imagine the beauty of the mountains and the oceans and the prairies with the curse lifted. Imagine relationships with friends and families and co-workers where all the redeemed are no longer functioning under the slavery of sin, but are behaving in their perfected state. Last week, I started with the end of the story, the hope of Advent. And so today, I want to start at the beginning of the story, the beginning of the story, the joy of Advent. The joy of salvation. And so for the remainder of the morning, I want to focus in on that. And I want to show you why that you need to hear this over and over and over again. The joy of Advent is that God did not give up on his people, but sent his people a savior. And so to get started this morning, I want to take a little bit of a journey here through the text or through the Bible, if you will, just a few verses to put before you before we get into Psalm 53. In Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to present him there to the Lord, there was a man there named Simeon. Remember this guy? The Bible tells us that he was a righteous and that he was a devout man. And the Bible tells us that this particular man, it had been revealed to him that he would not die, that God would not remove him from this earth until he had seen the Lord's Messiah, until he had seen the Christ, until he had seen the Savior. And Mary and Joseph came into the temple with with Jesus, and Simeon took Jesus into his arms. Remember the story? And God and Simeon blessed God and said, now, Lord. You are releasing your slave to depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel <clears throat> Simon blessed Mary and Joseph and said to them behold This child is appointed for the fall and for the rise of many. There was also a prophetess there in the temple when they presented Jesus there on his eighth day of his birth. And the prophetess' name was Anna. And the Bible tells us that she never left the temple, but served night and day with fasting and praying. And at this very moment that they brought Jesus into the temple, Anna came up and began giving Thanks to God, and continue to speak to, of Jesus to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And John the Baptist came preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus. In quoting Isaiah, John says, all will see the way God saves. And in 1 John chapter 4, the, the apostle John wrote this. The Father has sent His Son, the Son, to be the Savior of the world. And so, yes, indeed, Jesus is the reason for the season. This is the joy of Advent. And so, to help us understand the joy of Advent, I want to turn back the hands of time, if you will, In fact, I want to go back three millennium. I want to go back 3,000 years to when King David was ruler in Jerusalem. And the event that I want to draw your attention to, which you probably already figured out by now, is the story that I want to show you. Is from this story I want to show you the importance of what my thesis is, if you will, or what your takeaway that I want your takeaway to be, if you will, and that is that the joy of Advent is that God does not give up on his people, but God has sent his people a Savior. And so the story that I want to focus on is when King David took another man's wife. King David took another man's wife and killed her husband. We think affairs are bad, and they are. But add murder on top of the affair. Now, I suppose you're familiar with the story of Bathsheba and David and how David took this married woman and, in essence, raped her. And then when she told David that she was pregnant, had David, had David had her husband Uriah killed. And then David took Bathsheba as his wife. Now, you can read the story for yourself, if you like, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But it's after these events that I obviously want to focus on this morning. After these horrific events, David does not repent from this sin until he's confronted by Nathan. Nathan confronts David. David does indeed repent. And then he writes this psalm that is before us here this morning. Psalm 51. David pens this psalm of confession. And in it, David has the audacity to appeal to God's gracious. Loving kindness and compassion. So, look with me in your Bibles to verses one and two of Psalm 51. We obviously are not going to be able to cover everything in detail, so we're going to skim through this Psalm this morning. But I want to start with the very first sentence there, the, the very first phrase where David starts with, Be gracious. To me, O oh God. What we must understand is that David claims no reason other than the grace of God to start his appeal. He has no favors to call in. He's not talking about how good he was. He's not talking about all the things that he has done to help other folks. Nothing. He has no favors to call in. And yet David is appeal here to God is not an empty hope. He continues and he says, according to your loving kindness, be gracious to me, O God. We can reverse that according to your loving kindness. Now, the English Standard Version has there for loving kindness, steadfast love. The New Living Translation has unfailing love. It is the Hebrew word for Hesed, which has great depth and great meaning to it. And it's based upon relationship. It's a covenant word. And it's based upon this covenant relationship that God has with His people. And also in verse 1, He says, According to the greatness of your compassion. So He appeals to the loving kindness, the graciousness of God, and upon the compassion or the mercy that God has, the, 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 the abundant mercy, the greatness of of God's compassion. This is the appeal that David is making. In the word here for compassion, it is covenant faithfulness. And so we've got these two thoughts coming together. It's a relationship based upon faithfulness, not based upon David's faithfulness, but it's based upon God's faithfulness. David isn't depending upon himself. He's totally appealing to the faithfulness and to the relationship that he has with God. And this covenant, this relationship that David is appealing to, was established and is executed by God alone and by not anyone else. David's only part in this covenant is being the recipient of the covenant. In fact, in Psalm 106, we can get a little more of a sense of this here. Here. But the psalmist there tells us that the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people. And when he, when God heard their cry, he remembered his covenant for their sake. He relented according to the greatness of his hesed, to the greatness of his loving kindness, to the greatness of the relationship, to the faithfulness that God had established with His people. And so that's the first point that I want you to take with you this morning. And that is to understand that the only appeal that you and I have this morning, we cannot appeal to anything we have ever done, anything we plan on doing into the future. The only appeal that we have this morning is the same as David's. And that is appealing to the graciousness and to the faithfulness and to the loving kindness of God. That is it. David continues in verse 1, the very last phrase there, and he says, blot out my transgressions. And in verse 9b, he says something very similar, blot out my iniquities. Blot out my failures. Blot out my iniquities. The blot out is just to, to, to wipe away, to do away with. The forgiveness of sins, as we can deduce from this verse 1, is that it takes more than the offended, to have a tender heart. It takes more than to have just somebody to show us mercy, so to to speak, because the stain of sin also needs to be blotted out. The stain of sin needs to be removed. Pollution clings. And that is what David is now saying. Blot out my transgressions. And in Acts chapter 3, Coming to to this side of the cross, in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, when Peter preaches his second sermon, Peter says, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Colossians, Paul writes to the church there at Colossae, and he says, you were dead, we were dead in our transgressions, but Jesus made us alive together with him, having forgiven our transgressions, having canceled out. Hang on to that. Having canceled out the certificate of debt against us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having canceled out, having blotted out, having it wiped away. It is literally that. It is just to remove so as to leave no trace, to completely obliterate. I like to hike, coming from the state of Washington where you uh, <clears throat> people are very much in love with nature and and you hike with no trace right I mean you hear those sa- those sayings you you see those sayings what does it mean that you leave no evidence that you were ever there that is the attempt the hiker is supposed to take with him or her as they enter into creation and David here is saying that this is exactly God what you alone can do you need to completely remove the The stain that is upon me from my transgressions and from my iniquity. Now, David certainly did not understand the gospel to the extent that we understand the gospel on this side of the cross. But nonetheless, David understood that it is only something that God and God alone could do. And he comes into verse 2 and he says this. He says, wash me thoroughly. He continues in his appeal. Wash me thoroughly from all my iniquities. Now, wash me thoroughly? It's just like doing the laundry. Setting the washer on the heaviest cycle you have and dumping a gallon of bleach in it. That's the the emphasis that needs to be on on the word here when David says, wash me thoroughly. Wash me completely. Wash me. In verse 7. Of Psalm 51, he continues that thought there also. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He acknowledges that it is only God who can wash him, that he will be completely white as snow. Isaiah tells us that also when Isaiah writes there, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Verse 2, David continues the second part of verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin. This is the act of, of, of being clean. Again, to, to, to get a grasp on the appeal and, and in 1 John 1, he told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all Unrighteousness. Again, David puts this in language he understands in verse 7a where he says, Purify me with, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop is just a branch of, a, of an overgrown, oversized bush tree. That was used throughout the text. The hyssop is just a branch. Now David is certainly not appealing to this particular tree or bush for his cleansing. And so we must understand what this hyssop was used for. The emphasis of the act is on the cleans- cleansing or the purifying effect of the blood that was used in the purifying act. Like in Leviticus, where the, those with leper, were told that they're in the law of Leviticus, where we're told that they are supposed to sacrifice a, a, a birds or some type of animal such as that, and they're supposed to take hyssop and dip it in that blood and sprinkle it on the leper seven times, and the leper will be cleansed and cleaned from the leprosy. The first record of hyssop that we have is in Exodus chapter uh chapter 12, where God told the people before the Exodus that they're supposed to kill the Paschal Lamb, the the perfect spotless lamb, take some of its blood and sprinkle upon the header and the doors of the post, so that the death angel will pass by when they see this blood. But that's all before the cross. We live on this side of the cross. So in Hebrews chapter 9 where it quotes Exodus chapter 24, when God made his first covenant with the people. Remember, God gave Moses the book of the law. And as God gave Moses the book of the law, there was a sacrifice there that was made as this new covenant, which is now we call it the old covenant, but the new covenant was established there with the people. And God said, take a hyssop, sprinkle the book and the people with this blood. And now in Hebrews chapter 9, it says that the new covenant... Now it's the new covenant, so the old, the new replaces the old. This new covenant is made possible not through any other sacrifices other than Jesus. And this is what we must understand this morning, and this is where I want to get to. I know that's a bit whatever, but this is where I want to get to now this morning. It's because Jesus has done this one time. It's not something that Jesus does over and over and over again. And so as we think about the joy of Advent, as we think about the joy of salvation, this is what we must have before us this morning. And this is why I'm finding that this is so important and why I'm bringing it to you here. Because David didn't understand the cross. How could he? But the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, In 39, where Paul says, for I am convinced, and then he goes on with this long list, that nothing, nothing, I did an in-depth study of the word nothing in the original language. Nothing means nothing, so there we have it. Hmm. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, this is what we must understand as we think about the joy of salvation and we think of the work of the cross. This is why I'm coming to the beginning and we covered the ending last week is because of what Jesus has done on our behalf is why we can have the joy of our salvation restored. And so the joy of Advent is that God did not and does not give up on his people, but that God has sent his people a savior. This is the reason for the season. This is Christmas. This is the beginning of the story. And as we see here, looking at David's model confession in 51, he goes from one and two, and he starts with the appeal, and he appeals to God's goodness and greatness. And then then here, he goes into the confession. And the confession is what follows this appeal. In verses 3 to 5, we see the confession, if you want to... Jot down that outline, you can. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time in these. I've got five of them, so I can't spend much time on them. But I wanted to establish the beginning and then we'll go through these others kind of quickly. But the confession starts with ownership. Verses three and verses one and three, these first three uses the first person pronoun my five times. And this is confession. Myself in this position. It is my sin, it is my transgressions that has put me into this place. Confession starts with ownership. Verse 4, David says, It is against you and you alone that I have sinned. David understands the gravity of his actions. This is what confession is all about. Now you might think, well David, how can you say that? How can you say that it was you or you alone, God, that I have sinned? I think Uriah might have an opinion in the matter. I think Bathsheba may have an opinion in the matter. This is what we often get wrong. I don't want to say wrong, but first we need to go here and too many times we go there first. First, too many times we go to Uriah and Bathsheba when we do wrong, right? We think of that. We think of those we have wronged or we think those who have wronged us. And David models for us, it's like, no, no. When we sin against each other, when others sin against us, and these things happen, it is first and foremost, it is a sin against God. Now I want to show you uh, in Genesis chapter 39 to give you an example of this. We're told that when Joseph, remember the story when Joseph was approached by his master's wife, by the Potiphar's wife? And we are told that Joseph refused her advances. And why did he refuse her advances? Why did he do that? It tells us. David told her that there is no one greater in this house than I. And he, your husband, my master, has withheld nothing from me. He has made me second in command. But because you are his wife, he has withheld you from me. How then could I do this great evil and sin against who? God. God. See, Joseph understood that the first person that he must keep in mind, the first person that he would offend would be God. And too many times we forget about God. Too many times we forget about God and I think about me. I've been offended or I've offended you. No, it's God, first and foremost, that we must be thinking of. Against you, you only have I sinned, verse 4 of Psalm 51, and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. We hear all kinds of accusations made against God, the unfairness of God, when we're wronged. Well, there was a pastor... Or there was an elder or there was someone within the church. You hear the stories over and over and over and again. I cannot serve. I cannot follow a God that would allow such a thing to happen. See again, you see how we got the order wrong, right? We get the order wrong. It's first God. And David here says, he says that you, you are justified when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. So whatever sentence you're going to hand down upon me, God, you are justified in it and you are blameless in those actions. It is this type of confession that leads to true and lasting joy. When we understand that first and foremost, everything is about God. We have been created on purpose for purpose. God has set our birth date. And God has set our death date and everything between it is for the glory and the honor of God and God alone. We cannot understand those days between those two points, but God alone has orchestrated them. And we must acknowledge and understand that God is justified in how he uses those days and God is blameless within them. Well, the appeal leads to confession. As the restoration begins at this gulf right? Between what David done and the righteousness and the holiness of God. This is the gulf that is between those two. You see, David can pretend, he says, you desire truth in my innermost being. And David can pretend to be a man after God's own heart. I mean, here was a guy who was told that he's, after, he's, he's a man after God's own heart. You know, we can come to church on a Sunday morning like this and you can sit there looking as pious as you like. And I can stand here as pious as I would like. But it is only God who knows what's going on in here. And it is only God who knows what's going on in you. That is the truth. That David, that God, that that David is desiring from God and understanding comes from God. You will make me know wisdom, David says. In verse 8, make me to hear the joy of your gladness. And let the bones which you have broken rejoice you hear that? But the bones which you, God, have broken, rejoice. Leads us into the inward renewal, or just renewal, if you like. Verses 10 to 12. In verse 10, David says, create. This is this is this is language that is used uh, that only somebody who can do a miracle can do, right? God created, and now David is saying, God, you create a clean heart within me. It will take a miracle David is acknowledging to restore me. It's a a creation language that David here is using. And then he goes on in verse 11. He says, do not cast me away from your presence. David might certainly be remembering his predecessor Saul and how Saul had his... Uh, Issues and how God seemed to remove himself from the life of Saul and and David seeing how that went. And, And so David here could certainly be reflecting and seeing that. It's possibly what he has in mind. But David goes on in verse 12 and he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, there was the appeal, there was the confession, there was a restoration, then there was a renewal. And now we see... That it will lead to humble worship after this restoration. And see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. Paul there writes that in Jesus we have redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace. The redemption is, is literal language for just buying back a slave. And I was reminded of the story about Hosea where Hosea took a wife to Gomer and Gomer was not faithful to him at all and and God instructed Gomer or God instructed Hosea to go buy back Gomer and he went back to the slave auction, to the slave market and he bought Gomer back. He bought his own wife back who had been unfaithful for 15 pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. Think about that. Going to the slave market and buying back someone who has been as unfaithful as that, that is the restoration, that is the joy that David is saying, God, you restore the joy of your salvation, of that salvation, and that will lead to humble worship. David says in verse 13, then I will teach your ways. Verse 14, then my tongue will rejoice and sing of your righteousness. Verse 15, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. This is the desire of, Here that we see. Those who have gone through this path. Those who have gone and found themselves. What they feel is outside of Christ. They've offended a holy and righteous and just God. They've appealed to the graciousness and the mercy of God. They've confessed to God. They have gone through the restoration process. Then there's this desire to teach others. About the joy that they have. About what they have experienced. And those I would offer you this morning. Those. Whose bones have been broken are often the ones with the greatest passion to teach others. Those whose bones have been broken. Those who see how much they've offended and how much they've sinned against the holy and righteous God. When they realize that restoration of the joy of God's salvation and they experience that. Those are the ones that we often find. I was reminded of Luke chapter 22 where Jesus told Simon, I I love this verse. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded, didn't ask permission, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But, God says, I have prayed for you so that when you return, when you repent, when you come back, when you are restored, teach the brothers. Teach others about the holiness, about the graciousness, about the loving kindness of God. And we're going to leave it right there on that point here this morning. That's what I want us to understand this morning. You can read the rest of the chapter for yourself, but, but I want to leave it there. That's the point that I wanted to get to this morning as we go through this joy of Advent season. As we go through this time, certainly... There's happiness, I trust. There'll be happiness and laughter around every one of your tables. But if we miss the true joy of Advent, it will leave us wanting. It will leave us longing. As we go through this holiday season, you might find yourself facing somebody that maybe you've offended. Maybe they've offended you. Think about that. Think about the story here of David and how he appeals to God and says that, God, it's you first and foremost that are offended when your folks don't act the way that you have created them and designed them to be. So if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. The joy of Advent is that God hasn't given up on you, but God has sent you and each and every one of us a Savior. Father, I just um, thank you We thank you this morning for the way that you have been patient and gracious with each and every one of us. And Father, some of us may have just had a flesh wound. Some of us may have a finger broken. Some of us may feel as though every bone in our body has been broken. So I pray, Lord, that as you search the hearts and the minds as you search those inward parts within us, Lord, I can pretend, I can act, but Father, we would invite you to create within us a clean heart, a right spirit. And as we go through this Christmas Advent season, Father, we pray that, I pray that you would put the importance of it, you'd put the the gravity of it before us as we think about what this season truly really means to us and what it has cost you. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.